0: Uh, Hey, I love the 11 o'clock service. It just feels like I'm in here with all my friends and family. So super glad to be with you guys today. I'm Ben, if we haven't met yet. Uh, Super glad that you made it here. Exciting week leading up to Easter um, I am typically over in the college gathering at this time. That happens at 10.30. And in the college gathering, we always open with a discussion question. So I have a discussion question for you today, except you're not going to discuss it with anyone but yourself. So here's the question. Uh, when did you feel the strongest sense of anticipation that you've ever felt in your entire life? The most anticipation that you've ever felt in your life? Think about that. For some of you, it might be like leading up to... Your wedding, or the birth of your kid, looking at you, Hannah, or the uh, what else? What else? Any kids in the room? Like summer rolling around, finally anticipating the summer. That I don't know what it is for you, but for me, the most anticipation that I have ever felt happened when I went to camp for the very first time as a very small child. I went to camp. And uh, I went pretty much as early as you could possibly go as a kid, like the first year that they accept you. And let me tell you what, I just hated it. (laughs) This sort of homesickness just settled over me and was brutal. And I won't tell you what camp I was at to not throw them under the bus, but there I was at Pine Cove and uh, all of a sudden I'm in the woods, there are a bunch of adults and they won't tell me their names. You know how Pine Cove works? It's, t- it's a terrible place. I'm just, I, you know I'm totally joking and that Pine Cove is amazing and the problem was with me, right? Okay, now that's out of the way. I was at Pine Cove, horrible homesickness overtook me. So my entire mission that entire week was just get my parents to come and pick me up as soon as I possibly could. I w- I, some of you are Pine Cove counselors, and you're like, oh, we know that camper. We know that camper. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was like so crazy. Everyone would be in these amazing worship sets. Kids are giving their lives to Christ all around me, and I'm like, no thanks. We're like at the messy games, throwing mud on each other, and I'm like, no can do, No thanks. Uh, I even set it out as my mission to like take matters into my own hands and get my parents to come and bring me home as soon as possible. So I literally rolled in poison ivy. I rolled in poison ivy. Turns out I'm immune to the stuff. Uh, that didn't work. Okay, what, what else do we got? I faked that I had the flu, that I was horribly sick. Turns out you can't fake a fever. So I, I'm just sitting in the nurse's office, miserable, and eventually my, my plot failed And uh, my parents came and picked me up at the normal time that all the other parents come and pick up their kids. But I remember when my long-anticipated parents arrived, I just like, there's nothing in my sight other than my parents. I like left everything behind. Friends I had made at camp that week, no such thing. Kind counselor that had sat with me as I cried in my homesickness, good riddance. I'm coming for my parents because my deliverers had arrived to take me home, to take me home. So why do I tell you that story of anticipation? Well, because the message of Palm Sunday and the theme of the story of the nation of Israel is anticipation, right? Is anticipation. Is this waiting for something amazing to arrive. Something to come that they've been waiting on for years and years and years. And it wasn't just something that took them out of some certain place into a better place. No, they were waiting on a deliverer, a saviour who would rescue them not just from their own physical ailments, not just from Babylon or Assyria or Rome, but who would rescue them from their very selves, from their sins. Some deliverer that would give sight to the blind, healing to the sick, direction to the lost. They were waiting on a deliverer for years and years and years. And today, the beautiful message of Palm Sunday is we see so much of their anticipation turn to celebration. Anticipation turn to celebration. Celebration. It's a beautiful moment that's sort of the culmination of so many things that the Old Testament pointed to start to come to pass. Palm Sunday is sort of like the rising action, if you know literarily how certain stories work. It's the rising action that leads toward the, cru- the climax of this next week, toward the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the rising action. So today, what I want to do is just try as hard as we can to put ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite that was waiting and waiting, and waiting, waiting for their deliverer, waiting for their king, waiting for the one who would deliver them from darkness and into the glorious light, waiting. That's what I wanna do today. And in order to do so, we're gonna ask three questions. Three questions. Number one, what was Israel anticipating? What do the scriptures tell us that Israel was waiting on, anticipating with every ounce of their being? What were they waiting to come to pass? And then second, what does Palm Sunday tell us about what they were anticipating? What's Palm Sunday have to do with all of this anticipation? What's this really even mean? And then third, how did they respond to Palm Sunday? how did they respond to Palm Sunday? And as a result, my hope and my prayer is that our own faith in Jesus would be stirred and that our anticipation for Jesus' second coming would be grown all the more, all the more, So let's look at that first question. What was Israel anticipating? What was Israel anticipating? If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And man, today we're going to hit Genesis. We're we're even going to hit Revelation today. We're going cover to cover today. Buckle up. Only in an hour and a half, too. It's the craziest thing. Just kidding. Just kidding. So we're going to ask the question, what was Israel anticipating? What's the story of Israel and what they were anticipating? So, let me just remind you how the story of the scriptures begins. You remember how Genesis 1 describes the earth? It was formless and void. There was nothing. There was nothing. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and then what's God do? He speaks. He speaks. And God, just by the word of his mouth, creation pops into existence. Trees crash forth from the ground. Water wells up from the earth. All kinds of plants and animals are created from nothing, from the dust. All of a sudden, creation exists. It's a beautiful thing. And then on the sixth day, God does something amazing. He makes the first thing that he made in his own image, you and me, humanity. Humanity, he makes in his own image. And you know what he says to humanity? I've placed you in this beautiful, perfect garden world called Eden. And I have a few things that I want you to do. Take care of it have fun, enjoy this beautiful creation that I've placed you in, have kids multiply, fill the earth. You can do basically whatever you want. It's a beautiful, perfect world. They walk in harmony with God. And he says, but there's one thing, one simple thing that you can't do. One simple thing that you can't do. You know what that thing is? There's a tree in the middle of the garden known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the one thing giving you so much provision, but the one prohibition that I'm giving you is do not eat from that tree. Don't eat from that tree. That's the one thing they were told not to do. And then quickly, if you know the story, we're introduced to, to a. I guess that's the, the fourth character, the fourth character in the story. And he comes in the form of a snake, a talking snake. And we're not given a lot of background on this character, and for a while, we, don't, we aren't entirely sure who he is, but Revelation 12 tells us that his name is Satan, the devil himself in the form of a snake comes to the man and woman, and he says, what did God say to you? Did he really say not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know why God might not want you to eat from that tree? Because if you eat from it, you're gonna become like God himself, like God himself. You know who doesn't want that? God. And what do they do? They listen to the snake. They succumb to his temptation, and they eat from the tree. And all of a sudden, what was harmonious and beautiful is now broken and chaotic. Chaos floods into the world. Every subsequent human is infected with the disease known as sin. Sin is doing anything opposite of what God wants for us, and that's what every single one of us subsequently from Adam and Eve do. And yet in the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of the cursing, God offers hope, because he's the God who offers hope. So in Genesis three, we read what God says to the serpent. It's interesting, words spoken to the serpent inspire hope throughout generations. So read with me right now in Genesis chapter 3, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So the first thing that we learned that Israel is anticipating is a snake crusher. A snake crusher. See what this says right here? It says a male offspring from the line of Eve will come along and the snake is gonna strike his heel. The snake's gonna strike his heel. Now, you might just think that's that's like a, a painful bite, but in the in the early days, there was no anti-venom. This is a death blow. A bite, to the, a bite to the ankle, to the heel, is a death blow. So it's gonna, the snake is gonna kill the male descendant of Eve, but you know what the descendant's also gonna do? Crush the head of the snake. Crush the head of the snake. So subsequently, they're looking for someone who won't fall to the temptation of the snake, but will overcome him, who won't succumb to sin, but instead will follow God perfectly in righteousness. They're looking for the snake crusher. So all of a sudden, you turn to Genesis 4, and you see Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they had kids, Cain and Abel. And you know what they're looking for? Is one of these gonna be the snake crusher? Is one of these gonna be the snake crusher, the one who defies sin, who crushes the enemy? And you know what happens? Cain kills Abel. It's not the snake crusher generations go on and again and again. You see, even in Genesis chapter 5, it gives this list of descendants. Genesis chapter 4 has this evil genealogy, people who are bad and bad and bad. And then again, you see, there's this guy named Seth. Is he going to be this snake crusher? No. And then you finally get Noah. And there's this interesting story where God chooses Noah. God chooses Noah to deliver the people from a worldwide flood, It's going to be horrible. And then Noah, once they get done with the flood, God repeats the command that he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and says, now go, uh, be fruitful and multiply. And you sort of think, maybe Noah's going to be the snake crusher. Maybe Noah's this guy. But immediately you see him fall into sin again. And this pattern just continues for years and years and years. And then you get Abraham. God makes this beautiful promise to Abraham. He says, from your line, Abraham, from your line, Abraham, I'm going to restore my blessing to the entire earth, to the ends of the earth, to every single family. Restore my blessing on the earth. It's a beautiful promise. And then Abraham has a kid who has a kid who has a kid, yeah, named Judah. That was right, I think. Three, four. Anyway, kid named Judah. And God makes this really specific promise to Judah that pops up in Genesis chapter 49. So flip over to Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. This promise is given to Judah, and it's the second thing that Israel was anticipating. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine, and his his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So, essentially, what happens here, if you look at the first part of these verses, you can see that the next thing that they were anticipating was a snake crusher king from uh, the line of Judah. A snake crusher king from the line of Judah. Sort of what God is doing here is he takes this funnel. He starts with a big open funnel and says, I'm going to bring a snake crusher from the line of Eve. And now he narrows the funnel a little bit. You know that it's not just going to be a snake crusher. It's going to be a snake crushing king. And he's going to come from the line, the family of Judah. But I love there's something else that happens here. that You can see in the second half of this verse. And it says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He mentions two donkeys here. The donkey, a donkey's kid, a colt. And where are they? They're bound to a vine, a post. You know what a donkey bound to a post is doing? Waiting. Waiting. We'll circle back to this, but put a pin in this and note how amazing it is that in this moment, it's already talking about the prophecy of a donkey. So who are we waiting for? We're waiting for a snake-crushing king from the line of Judah. So years roll by, and guess what? No king, no king, no king, no king, until finally we get a king from the line of Judah. You know what his name is? David. That's right. King David starts to rule on the throne. He's God's king. He's anointed by God. He's chosen by God. And David is not like any other before him. He's a man after God's own heart. And you start to think, perhaps David is the snake-crusher the one that's gonna deliver us from our calamity and our sin. But what do you know about David? David falls to sin as well. David again succumbs to the snake's temptation like every single person before him. But yet, even in God's grace, God says this to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven. He says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what they're anticipating is a snake-crushing king from the line of Judah and David. See what's happening? Funnels up here, narrowed, narrowed again. He's going to come from the line of David, from the family of David. So this is essentially what they're expecting. They're expecting a Davidic king to take over and rule them perfectly. But have you read the books of First uh, and Second Corinthians and First and Second Kings? You know what they see again and again and again? Bad king after bad king. After bad king, after bad king. Again and again and again, they all fall to the snake. They all succumb to sin. Again and again, generation after generation. And yet, in the middle of that brokenness, God offers hope through the prophets. God offers hopes through the prophets. All of these different prophets speak messages of hope and repentance to the people as they're trudging through life with horrible king after horrible king and enemy rulers taking them over. And one of the prophecies that we're going to see today comes from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. So we're going to spend a little bit more time in there, flip over to Zechariah 9. If you turn back from Matthew, you got Matthew, Malachi before that, and Zechariah is right before that. And the reason this prophecy is so pertinent today I'll get there eventually. The reason this prophecy is so important today is because we're going to see two things about this prophecy. Number one, it's fulfilled on Palm Sunday. You'll see that this prophecy is fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Number two, it shows us more about the character of our king, more about the character of our king, the guy who's going to come from the line of Abraham, Judah, David. What's he going to be like? Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine shows us, shows us. Guys, I turned past it like five times. There we go. Okay, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a what? On a donkey, on a foal, the colt of a donkey. The colt of a donkey. So he opens by saying rejoice greatly, And shout aloud, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, what's he referring to there? It's a metaphor to describe all of the children of Israel, every single person in the nation of Israel. That's who he's speaking to. He's saying, you have great news for great hope. Why? Because your king's coming. Your king is coming. The king you've been waiting on for generations, generations, centuries. He's coming. And what's he going to be like? Well, the first thing it says he's going to be like is this, the king will be righteous. The king will be righteous. So what they're anticipating is a snake crushing king from the line of Judah and David, who is righteous. Who's righteous? Now, what do we mean by the word righteous? Well, righteous literally means conforming to a certain standard, conforming to a certain standard. So if you take a dumbbell, for example, yeah, imagine you're working on those biceps at home. You got a five pound dumbbell. Yeah, you're getting big. And that dumbbell says it weighs five pounds, says it weighs five pounds. Now, if you put it on a scale, what does that scale say it weighs? If it conforms to the standard that it's given to itself, which is that it weighs five pounds, then it's considered a righteous dumbbell. It's righteous, it conforms with the standard. That makes sense? That makes sense? But if it says it's 4.75 pounds or 5.2 pounds, it's not conforming to the standard. It's unrighteous. So spiritually, righteousness means conforming to the standard of God himself, conforming to the standard of God's character, what God has said we're to be like, So, what he's saying here is that this king will be perfectly conforming to the standard of God. He's going to be without sin, unlike every other false king. He's not going to succumb to the temptations of the snake. Echoes of this are all over the Old Testament. Isaiah speaks of the righteous king again and again and again. We'll look at just a couple examples. And his delight, this Messiah, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. Again, in Isaiah 16, 5, the throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And then one more in Isaiah chapter 32, behold, a king will reign in what? In righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. What he's saying is that the king is not just gonna be all talk, Not like, he's not like a president or um, some leader of a company or any leader that you've ever followed that just is all talk and not do. No, he's righteous in his conduct, in his action. One commentary I read put it like this. This is no static quality. In each passage, righteousness is seen in the activity of the king, governing, administering justice, encouraging right, when rogues continually succeed in getting away with crimes when innocent people suffer and find no redress to be promised that righteousness will triumph that the righteous will be vindicated is a cause for deep joy for deep joy they're anticipating a king who is righteous and the next the next thing that the verse tells us is that he's going to be righteous and having salvation having salvation is he so who are they anticipating they're anticipating a snake crushing king from the line of Judah and David who's righteous and salvation bringing, salvation bringing. Now this is actually a really fascinating passage because it, it, or word that's used here because it can either mean he is being saved or having salvation or he's victorious. Your translation might say victorious or bringing salvation. But essentially the idea that it's getting at is somehow this Messiah is going to be deeply involved in work of salvation, in the work of salvation. And the people would have misread this, like Aaron said a little bit ago. They would have thought they're waiting for a military king who's going to crush Rome, crush Babylon, crush Assyria. But in reality, it's going to be a pretty big plot twist that the salvation that the king brings is mostly spiritual. The king is going to bring salvation. And the next says that our king will be righteous, having salvation, humble, humble. The king is going to be humble. Humble. They're waiting on a king who is humble. This is a fascinating descriptor because how many kings can you describe as humble? None, none of them. They're all prideful and have huge heads and boastful all the way throughout the Old Testament and history. You see the kings, rulers of men, can rarely be described as humble. Yet this king is gonna be different. Look at this descriptor given to our king in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See what that's saying there? He has no form or majesty that we should be drawn to him. He's humble. What I love about this is if you think about it, none of us got to choose the body that we were born into. We, we got this. We got, you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, basically. Not Jesus. Jesus got to choose the body that he was born into. He has got to choose his own body. And you know what he chose? He chose no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our king will be humble. He's a humble king. And then finally, it says that our king will be mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, This can be taken both literally and spiritually, but metaphorically, sorry, literally and metaphorically, and metaphorically, what it means is that the king will be peaceful. The king will be peaceful. Literally, he will ride in on a donkey. It's the same passage from Genesis 49. It's a repeat of those words here in Zechariah 9, and it's saying again, the king will literally ride in on a donkey, but metaphorically, he's gonna bring peace. Where do I get that? Because kings rode two animals. Kings rode two animals, the donkey and the horse. When would, when would they ride the horse? When they're heading into war. The horse was a symbol of fear, a symbol of war. When would they ride the donkey? In peacetimes. A king only rode a donkey in peacetimes. The most advanced military technology that they had at this point was the horse, the war horse. So why ride the donkey? You never ride a donkey into battle. You're, you're going to get whacked off that thing. It's not good. Donkeys, you ride in peacetime. Peacetime, So it's saying, it's showing that the king that rides into town will be one who is peaceful. And not just peaceful, not just peaceful, but he's going to be a snake-crushing king from the line of Judah and David, who's righteous, salvation-bringing, humble, and peaceful. Peaceful. This is the king that they were waiting on. This is the king that they were awaiting. Um, Hannah and I, right now, are trying to buy our first home and a couple of weeks ago, our realtor had us come up with a list of non-negotiables, you know, things that like, unless the house has these qualifications, we refuse to move in. So we started, you know, making our list, like lots of natural light, open concept, a butler named Thurston, all things that are, you know, within our price range. And um, we laid out these, this list of non-negotiables and then every house that we're looking for subsequently has to meet those standards, basically, if that makes sense. So what we have right now is a list of ideas of what we're expecting, but no actual picture of what that thing is actually going to look like. Like, is is it gonna, is it gonna? What are house distinctives? Anyway, you get the point. We don't know exactly what house we're going to find if we're going to find one at all. And in a way, what Israel is doing is they're waiting with this list of things that they know that this king will bring. It's a It's a beautiful list that shows that their king is going to be one who's amazing and delivers them not just from their enemies but from themselves. But they're waiting. They're waiting. And for generations, the king doesn't come. They don't have the king come. People live and people die and never see the arrival of the king. And in fact, as you get to the end of the Old Testament, you flip from Zechariah to Malachi. As you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, you should really have a lot of blank pages in there because there were 400 years of silence in between the Testaments. There were no prophecies. There were no potential messiahs. Very little hope given to the people from God except for what was given in the past. But that makes it so beautiful that as soon as you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, the book of Matthew opens with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ Son of David, the son of Abraham, and then there's a genealogy. Has that ever seemed boring and pointless to you? Do you see the point of it now? Look what it does. It traces from Eve to Abraham to uh, to to Judah, to David to Jesus. It shows that this guy there's a guy who's from the line of Judah he's from what we've the line that we've been anticipating the king that we've been waiting for. And then in just another couple of chapters, Matthew talks about Jesus going into the wilderness with the devil. You remember that? Jesus fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's alone in the wilderness. And you know who comes to tempt him? The snake that was in the garden. And you know what every single other human throughout all of human history had done? Given into the temptation of the snake. You know what Jesus doesn't do? Give into the temptation of the snake. Jesus shows that not only is he genetically qualified, he's morally qualified to do this thing to be the king that they've been waiting for. And then eventually we get our passage in palms, on Palm Sunday in Matthew chapter 21. So turn over to Matthew chapter 21 and it shows us what does Palm Sunday have to tell us about the anticipated king, about the anticipated king. Read with me in Matthew chapter 21, verses one through nine. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. See what's happening here? This this is pretty good. This is pretty good. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to do what? To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, by Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna in the highest! What does Palm Sunday show us about the anticipated king? Palm Sunday shows us the king. Jesus is the anticipated king. The people realize it in this beautiful, beautiful moment. This is the king we've been waiting for, the deliverer we've been promised. How do you know? Because, well, he's riding on a donkey. Genesis chapter 49, Zechariah chapter 9. What do both promise? That this king is going to be riding in on a donkey. Look how he goes to lengths to exactly fulfill this prophecy. Don't just bring a donkey. Bring a donkey and it's, it's Colt, the foal of a donkey. You know how it said that? In Genesis 49, Zechariah 9. He's fulfilling the prophecy to every last word. It's an amazing thing. And then Matthew tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And he quotes Zechariah 9 9. So, what was spoken by the prophets? That Jesus will be righteous, salvation bringing, humble, and peaceful. Let me ask you this Is Jesus righteous? Is Jesus righteous? Yes. Jesus was like us in every way except without sin. We already saw in the wilderness, he did not succumb to the temptations of the snake. Is Jesus uh, salvation bringing? Remember what Jesus said in John fourteen six: I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus humble? Yes. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Is Jesus peaceful? Yes. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 27. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And you know what? The people recognize this. Look what they shout: Hosanna to the son of David. Verse, that's verse nine. Hosanna to the son of David. What do they mean when they say the son of David? They're recognizing this guy's from the right lineage. He's from the lineage of Judah and David and everything we've been waiting for. He's from the right lineage. This is the potential king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You know what Hosanna means? Save us now, save us now. It's a plea for salvation to the king who holds it in his hands. It's a beautiful moment. It's the moment that they realize the snake-crushing king from the line of Eve, from the line of Abraham, from the line of Judah, from the line of David, who is righteous and salvation-bringing and humble and peaceful, he's here. Your king is here. Your king has arrived, and he's riding onto a donkey. He's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, holding in his hands hope for the hopeless, peace for those found in darkness, light to every heart who's far from Christ. The king has arrived It's anticipation realized. It's the first colors of spring finally breaking forth through the brown and cracked and dry ground. It's an amazing, amazing moment. All the people have to do is say, yes, Jesus, we accept you. We accept you as our king. We'll put you on the throne. Palm Sunday shows us that Jesus is the anticipated king. What do they do? How do they respond? please, Lord, let this be the moment that they put Jesus on the throne, they submit to whatever he says, they love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you know how the story goes. You know that Israel rejected the anticipated king. That Israel rejected the anticipated king. That in five short days, they trade their palm branches for whips and their cries of Hosanna for cries of crucify him. They'd put nails in the hands that wove them together in their mother's wombs. That they would put a crown of thorns on the head that knows their very thoughts. That they would put the body that deserves a throne on a cross to hang. (sighs) They crucified their king. They crucified their king. They rejected the anticipated king. Thousands of years of waiting. Here he is. And they crucify him. They kill him. And the hardest part of the story is it's not just Israel that rejected the anticipated king. We rejected the anticipated king. We rejected the anticipated king. How do I know that? Because if any one of us has ever done anything contrary to what Jesus wants for our life, if we've ever sinned, we've chosen the snake, not the snake crusher. We've chosen to put Jesus on the cross by rebelling against him. And Romans 3.23 tells us the hard truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin infests our generation. Sin infests every human throughout all of human history. Can you feel it? Can you feel the effects of sin in your own heart that you don't do the things you want to do? I feel it. Do you feel the effects of sin in in our world, in our country? People are divided so hateful against each other so much conflict and hate do you feel it in our world the war is just bubbling up left and right countries destroying countries do you feel what generation after generation rejecting King Jesus does to the world I'm reminded of that song Is He Worthy the opening lines say do you feel the world is broken we do do you feel the shadows deepen we do we do feel the world is broken because we've rejected king jesus but i'm also reminded of the next line in that song that says but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do. We do. How do we know that? Because three days later, King Jesus rose. King Jesus rose. And we celebrate this week. Not only do we mourn his death, we celebrate his resurrection with everything in us, knowing that our king, our king could not be held by the grave. He rose, proving, proving that death has no power over him, proving that he, his light cannot be quenched. Proving that there's nothing, nor no schemes of hell, no powers of men, nothing can stand against the power of Christ because he rose. He overthrew the most unoverthrowable overthrowable thing, the tomb. Jesus rose and conquered death. He conquered death. And I love that the next time that we'll be holding palm branches in our hands, shouting to Jesus in praise, is seen in Revelation chapter 7, when he's seated on the throne. And it says this, After after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. King Jesus rose, and King Jesus will reign forever in spite of our rejection, in spite of our rebellion. King Jesus will reign forever, forever. And this is the beautiful truth that we're reminded of this week. We're reminded of this week. On Palm Sunday, we saw Jesus heralded and accepted and then six days later rejected. Six days later rejected, but three days later he rose and he will reign forevermore. Praise God, praise God. So how do we respond to this beautiful reality that Palm Sunday reminds us of? King Jesus was the anticipated king, the one they waited for forever. He's the one who gives us hope, who's seated on the throne on high forever and ever. How do we respond? How should we respond? Well, let me just exhort you toward three simple things. First, submit to King Jesus' rule. I don't know if you would say that you've, you've ever decided to put King Jesus on the metaphorical throne of your life. But man, today's the day. Today's the day to realize that walking through life apart from Jesus leads to death and destruction. But in Christ, life eternal is found. If you want to spend your eternity alongside Jesus, reigning on his throne forever and ever, all you have to do is believe in your heart, profess with your mouth that Jesus died and rose again. It's all you have to do. Or maybe for you, you've believed in Jesus before, but you wouldn't say he's the one that's on the throne of your life. Maybe it's, it's you on your own throne and you listen to yourself. You follow your own prerogatives. You do what you want to do. But today's the day to realize, no, that's a rejection of King Jesus. I want to put King Jesus on the throne of my life. Submit to King Jesus' rule. And then second, remember what King Jesus did. Remember what King Jesus did. Christians for centuries have remembered during this Holy Week, which is the week leading up to Easter, the sacrifice that King Jesus made on our behalf and the resurrection that he experienced, conquering death. So this week, let me just encourage you, come on Good Friday. Come this Friday between five and seven and remember, reflect on what Jesus has done. Reflect on what Jesus has done. We also have an amazing resource. Um, It's a Bible reading plan that goes through what happened each day of Holy Week. It's on that QR code. You can also find it on our website. There's a link that says um, uh, Holy Week Resources, so you can find it there too. But I'd encourage you to go through this this week and see what Jesus did every single day of the week. See how he lived his last week, the last words that he spoke to his disciples. Read through that this week. And then show up on Easter Sunday. Show up on Easter Sunday. Bring your friends who are far from jesus lots of questions about jesus are stirred at this time of year so what an amazing amazing week to bring your friends that don't know jesus and then next i mean one of the coolest and most beneficial things that jesus left us with to remember regularly what he had done was the ancient christian practice of communion of communion communion is just a simple act that we take of reminding ourselves with the bread that Jesus body was broken for us and with the cup that Jesus blood was spilled on our behalf. Why do we do that? Why do we eat and drink something to remind ourselves of that? Because every time we do, we remember with our bodies, not just our minds that Jesus died on our behalf and he rose three days later. So you've got a communion cup in front of you. And what I'd encourage you to do right now is just take a minute and ask Jesus to remind you, remind you right now, remind you this week, of his great sacrifice that he made on your behalf. And in just a minute, we'll take communion together. do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me for often, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yeah. yeah. Use this week. Use this week to remember what Jesus did. Remember what Jesus did on your behalf. Live in the spirit of communion this week. And then finally, let me just end by encouraging you to rejoice greatly and shout aloud. We already read those verses in Zechariah 9, nine, but I just want to read them to you one more time today as we transition into worship. And praise God, praise God for what he's done and who he is. Zechariah 9.9, 9, one more time. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Would you join me in standing and praising our King Jesus, because our King has come.